I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is being recorded live via TalkShoe on July 3rd, 2009. For more information on the Biota Podcasts, check out biota.org slash podcast. So if you too would like to participate, the easiest way to get the call-in information is to go to biota.org slash podcast. And if you're interested in participating in a Biota Live by all means, get in contact with me, Tom at noblelate.com. The next episode on July 17th at 8 p.m. Pacific will be the 50th episode of Biota Live. And I downloaded, uh, well, I backed up some of the Biota podcasts, more than two gigs worth, actually, uh, over the past few days. So a phenomenal amount of audio has been recorded in Biota Live. And I think particularly because there have been some recent updates at open source that I wanted to talk a little bit about open source and get some folks on to talk about uh, the kind of contemporary setting of open source, because even though it's probably been about six to eight months since we last talked about open source in a Biota Live, a lot has gone on since then, uh, particularly with regards to SourceForge, but also up-and-coming projects. I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. And also, I wanted to um, ask, you know, what have we learned from Biota Live? I mean, 50 episodes in to doing Biota Live, about a year and a half's worth of recordings. What have we actually learned from it doing this process, from recording audio discussions, a number of participants, number of topics, although a number of returning topics as well. So feedback from the community, please, tom at noble8.com. It's going to be a very interesting 50th show. So Biota 5, I keep saying it every other week, that uh, the Biota 5 conference is coming up in 2011. I've had some correspondence with Dick Gordon to confirm the three tracks are, are up and running. Origins of Artificial Life, which carries on from Bruce Damer's EvoGrid-related development, and also he's doing a track at A-Life 12 associated with the EvoGrid and the Origins of Artificial Life. There was an article published on Space.com this week about the EvoGrid, which brought a small amount of traffic back to the Biota site. A lot of people were in the EvoGrid.org site and uh, some correspondence associated with that. Um, Bruce and uh, Peter Newman have started uh, EvoGrid Dev mailing list. So if you're interested in participating or following the EvoGrid development specifically, this, I think, is about code as opposed to uh, meta-ideas. But if you're a coder or if you're interested in seeing how the EvoGrid code will develop, that's the mailing list for you. There's also a broader EvoGrid discussions-related mailing list, and I think both these mailing lists are uh, accessible from the evogrid.org site. So anyway, Biota 5, Origins of Artificial Life, associated with the EvoGrid, and 
this kind of increasing vein of artificial life and artificial chemistry in terms of the origins of artificial life. Artificial life perspective in the dialogue between science, philosophy and religion. This continues on from the Dick Gordon book project. Dick's original aim with Biota 5 was really to create a sequel to uh, his uh, Divine Action Natural Selection. And I think there's some potential through this track that uh, a number of folks in the in the ongoing dialogue come together. I mean, it would be wonderful to have some of the kind of active participants and maybe fringe artificial life or even non-artificial life folk attend the conference with the view that the Bioda conferences have typically been uh, an opportunity for people from divergent fields to kind of get together and talk about artificial life. And certainly Gerald Jung's discussion associated with kind of meeting in pubs after uh, various biota conference proceedings and these kind of things. The, the flow on from these uh, biota conferences, I think, is a, a large part of the uh, the wonder and the merit associated with them. So the final one, bridging the gap between artificial life in industry, academia, and as a hobby. And this is certainly going to come up with the topic this evening because certainly the ethics of artificial life, how artificial life is being used, and whether the military use of artificial life is important, and also the kind of ongoing quality of life issues associated with artificial life development. I mean, I think this is a, a kind of continued theme and something which uh, came up in the Natasha Vita Moore discussion, but, you know, really echoes through with regards to the ethics of artificial life. If you are an artificial life developer, if you have this skill set, this knowledge, should it be used by the military? And are we in a situation currently where any artificial life-related job is better than no job at all? So visions of the Evo grid. I'm not sure whether Bruce is back currently, but Bruce was going to be on the call this evening, and I've asked him to uh, to contact a few of the people in his kind of broader advisor list in terms of getting them on the visions of the Evo grid podcast. Through earlier discussion, I have slowed down the visions of the Evo grid podcast in large part because I think there are a number of topics coming through Biota currently which uh, I'd like to put out in the audio, and I think in terms of Evo grid saturation, although. We'll probably have Peter and Bruce on this evening to talk more about the Evo Grid. When you want more visions of the Evo Grid, or if you're interested in communicating about the Evo Grid, then by all means, we have someone else on the call. It's Jeffrey. Oh, Jeffrey, wonderful to have you on. The Biota 5 conference, I mean, in terms of the your experiences, did you attend two or three of the Biota conferences previous? You know, I, I can't remember. I think we we were talking about this once. I couldn't remember which one I attended. It was the one that was it, it was in San Jose. So right. So. so you okay? So that I think yeah, I've got video footage. That's bio to three. Uh huh. From memory. I have a T-shirt here somewhere. Oh, very good. In very fact, good. I'm looking at it right now. Biota. Digital Biota 3. Very yeah, good. very funky T-shirt here with all kinds of crazy creatures all over the place. Very nice, very nice. So in talking about the potential of doing a, a Biota 5 in 2011, uh, certainly Dick Gordon, Bruce Damer, and I have been having kind of extended correspondence associated with that. In terms of your experiences with Biota 3, I mean, I think Biota 3 was relatively unique because there were a lot of kind of breakout groups that came through the, the conference. Certainly, Gerald de Jung's description of Biota 2 relates more to kind of after the conference had kind of concluded for the day, the pub discussions were the parts that, uh, you know, Gerald got most inspiration from at Biota 2. But can you talk a little bit about the, the kind of folk at Biota 3 and the kind of folk that you'd like to see at a Biota 5? Well, I uh, the uh, the only people I remember I remember meeting Rudy Rucker there and having a nice conversation with him, and then I also met uh, 
the guys who were just starting to make uh, endorphin um, morphine, natural motion, the natural motion guys up at Oxford, uh, Colin, uh, Colin Massey and the guy who's in charge, I forget his name, but I've, I've stayed in touch with them from that point on. I wasn't really part of the pub, uh, you know, crawl uh, episodes afterwards. I just kind of dipped in and, and left. I was, think I was there for one day. It was a one-day event. I can't remember. I mean, I, I, I think I was in transit at the time, and I haven't attended any of the Bioeta conferences either prior or past Bioeta 3. Were you there, Tom? No, I wasn't. Oh, okay, all right. I haven't attended any of the Bioeta conferences. I mean, I, I have a lot of video footage of you in particular at Bioeta 3. Uh-huh. And in fact, I have a lot of video footage full stop associated with Bioeta 3. But I, I remember you did a presentation at Bioeta 3, and you were also a kind of active participant in some of the breakout groups that was were, were there. Okay. I mean, my sense associated with probably two and one, well, one was basically a long walk, <laughs> and a conversation extended along a long walk, and then, you know, getting back from the Burgess Shale, actually sitting down and, and talking. But the, the, the sense I have of one is that it was a kind of Burgess Shale walk where all these people were kind of talking and walking and... and doing that kind of stuff, and then they came back and, you know, had various small presentations. Bioeta 2 was considerably more structured in terms of presentations, but all the breakout-related discussions occurred in the pub afterwards or after the, you know, the day's worth of sessions, and certainly that was Gerald de Jong's feedback. And my sense with Bioeta 3 was that they'd finally kind of rocked the breakout sessions um, I'm not sure how long it was. Um, my recollection is it may have been two or three days, but you possibly attended the the day that you know with your presentation and that made most sense to you. I don't get a sense of how long the Bioeta Five conference is going to be, but my hope is that it would be for you know a few days, maybe two or three. Um, the plan currently is to do three separate tracks. Uh, one associated with the origins of artificial life, which is the, or sorry, yeah, the origins of yes, the origins of artificial life, uh-huh. which is Bruce Damer's kind of Evo Grid discussion. He's going to do a um, a track at uh, Artificial Life 12 as well, which will lead into this track at Biota 5, um, bringing the folks from uh, Flint and various other. Um, you know, artificial life chemistry uh, groups and also some kind of artificial chemistry simulation groups. So I think the kind of wet and certain aspects of soft artificial life and the kind of liaison will be what Bruce is doing with regards to the origins of artificial life. Then there's a continuation, obviously, with the Dick Gordon book, um, Divine Action and Natural Selection. I think Dick really wanted Biota 5 to be a kind of hotbed of, you know, continuation from the book with the view that there would probably be a sequel either written prior to or at the conference specifically with the participants. So the, you know, science, philosophy and religion with the view that artificial life kind of creates some solutions and more questions is going to be one of the tracks. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds like a good track. <laughs> and the final one is, is the more applied stuff, the stuff that I'm trying to do with Mark Badeau currently, uh, bridging the gap between artificial life and industry, academia, and as a hobby. And this is the idea of you know artificial life games, how artificial life is being used by Eli Lilly and Intel and these kind of things. So 
these are the three tracks that we're discussing currently with the view that hopefully the tracks will not, you know, there will not be too much overlap and people will be able to attend absolutely everything that they want to. Right. I think also, as with Biota 3, everything is going to be videotaped and my hope is also that a large portion of it is going to be streamed live in some form. Mm. Um, so we'll see how that pans out, but I know Adelandel will be attending with you know with a video camera, and uh, I guess the rest will be uh, recorded history, no doubt. And where will this take place? It's going to be in Manitoba, in Canada. It's oh. going to be at Dick Gordon's University. Right. Oh. So, yeah, start saving the pennies, I think. Right. And uh, ACAL, I mean, I keep getting emails from people asking me if I'm going to be attending ACAL, but it seems like it's going to be quite a conference. Yeah, yeah, I'm hoping so. I missed the paper deadline, um, unfortunately, but um, I will be doing this workshop, so I, I need to start getting ready for that. It'll it'll be upon me, any you know, before I know it. And in terms of gliders on spheres, have you had any new insights since since we last spoke? Um, little idea. M more, most of the insights are basically how can I get this damn thing uh, into a testable. Uh, simulation where I can uh, basically what I've done and I start I started building a sim so that there are two grids one is the uh, a, a square grid that has wraparound get, creating a torus topology and the other is a is a geodesic grid on a sphere and I'm, what I'm trying to do is make them as similar as possible which which raises interesting questions um, and then to to put glider configurations on them and then let them run and watch how they diverge from each other, whether the difference is, and sort of maybe gather some metrics from that. Um, and at the moment, uh, I think the metrics, you know, I, I may think that there's a predictable result, but I'm actually hoping for something very cool and unpredictable to happen. Um, so we'll see. I do get the sense that there's a kind of renaissance in cellular automata currently. I mean, it just could be, you know, William R. Buckley and Golly and, you know, Gerald Jung did a, a grey thumb yesterday associated with Golly specifically. But also, in my Nature Inspired Informatics chapter, I talked a lot about the Nobelite Cognitive Simulation being based in, you know, early 60s, well, actually late 60s, early 70s cellular automata development. Do you think there's, you know, do you think there's a, a renaissance almost of cellular automata currently? Well, there there could be uh, the kind of the kind that's sort of technology uh, driven. In other words, uh, perhaps some of the ideas that have been floating around might actually be able to bloom because uh, of just simply computer speeds. Like, for instance, I I've tried some 3D CA before, uh, 3D in the sense of they're actually um, in volumes, uh, Euclidean 3D spaces. Certainly. But it's always been very slow, and I have a feeling that uh, at, at some point, probably now, uh, I can actually, and I actually did, did create a 3D uh, cellular automata thing, and it's got some pretty cool-looking gliders in there. Um, so it just might be that the Renaissance is... Um, uh, a faster, more facile tools to discover the cool stuff that's there. Yeah, I think that's certainly the case with Golly, and certainly the feedback that I'm receiving currently from folks such as William R. Buckley and, and Gerald as they play with uh, with Golly specifically. 
it's, it's interesting times because just when you kind of count out something like cellular automata, it seems to be coming back as a as a new. And as you say, the computational power is the is the critical part. Yeah, it could be. I'm not sure if you heard uh, the last Biota Live, but I'm going to be in the Bay Area in mid-September. Okay. Uh, and I put to Gerald, I, I hope to be speaking at a Gratham. In fact, speaking at a Gratham is the main reason that I'm coming to the Bay Area. Uh-huh. But I put to Gerald Young last episode, you know, if, if you were to see me talk on some topic, what would you want me to talk on? And he asked me to do a presentation on the Novel Ape source code, which I went away and did in podcast form. And it took about two and a half hours, which I think is out. And that was just for, I think, four files worth of Noble Ape source code. Uh, uh-huh. So it was well, without the, well outside the scope, I think, of a, a traditional Grayson talk. And probably, although I've gotten a lot of positive feedback through doing it, uh-huh. probably, uh-huh. you know, um, for, for a majority of the folks at Grayson, probably a bit too, uh, a bit too dry. But if you were to see me do a talk in September, what would you like to see me talk on? Hard to say, but um, I would assume that with all of your biota podcasts and all of your work, you've probably seen some common threads and some interesting uh, trends. Uh, I would think a, a, a very Tom-specific view on all of this, uh, yeah, whatever I think, that is. I think the meta topic is certainly there, and in terms of where we're going and how we get there, I mean, this is something that, uh, well, I mean, ultimately is almost the topic for this evening as well, so... It would be something that I'd like to talk on. My thought was to do three 20-minute presentations, and that would be one of the three presentations. So just give kind of tastes of various aspects of things that I see in the future, and also I wanted to do something specific to Noble Ape and right, yeah. something more specific to Biota. So uh-huh. I think, yeah, you, you've, you've answered one of the topics that I'm going to do. So I'll, I'll put a double tick next to that one. I hear that we have Peter Newman on the call. Hello, Peter. Hello, Tom. Finally got the thing connecting. Good to have you on. Um, we have Jeffrey Ventrella, and I'm not sure... Do you know Peter, Jeffrey? Hey, I'm not sure if we've met, Peter. No, no, i sorry, but I have no idea who you are. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, Tom, can uh, you can look me up on the Internet and see some of my work uh, after this. So, so why don't I introduce you, Jeffrey? So if you look at, um, are you familiar with the computer game Flow at all? Me? Um, I've seen some screenshots and stuff of it, yeah. Okay, so if you're, if you're familiar with kind of artificial life in an, an aqueous medium, Jeffrey Rantrello is really the kind of founder and lead developer of that idea in artificial life. And he's through Gene Pool and Darwin Pond, he's made... Swimmers, you know, as, as kind of central theme in his work. Ironically, actually, I was talking with Steve Grand, and he also has a an ad- kind of advanced swimming game um, that he's developing currently too. Which is, I think, what he's taking actually, Jeffrey, is is the phenotype aspects of Gene Paul and making that a game in itself. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Which is quite interesting. So you play kind of genotype world, phenotype world. And they're two separate games, but you see the swimmers evolve in different ways. Ah. So, and Jeffrey's currently working on gliders, kind of cellular automata on spheres, um, for a conference called ACAL, which uh, you should really go to, Peter. Have you heard of ACAL? Um, no, not off. doesn't ring any bells. It's the Australian Conference of Artificial Life being held at Monash. Oh, okay. I think I might have seen something about that, but I sort of tend to go, oh, conference, right, it'll be in the US. I can't attend that. 
Well, funnily enough, there are no artificial life conferences in the US, and ACAL is, is looking like it's going to be an absolutely fantastic conference. Peter, you should go. Bruce here just got my way in here. So we have Jeffrey Ventrella, Peter Newman, and Bruce Damer on the call. Hello, Bruce. Hello, hello. I was just introducing Jeffrey to Peter. How, how would you introduce Jeffrey? person who is both an incredible artist uh, and an incredible designer and, pro and coder and creator of things that all work together from art, function, and magic. I, uh, I, I met Bruce in Paris, actually. Right, Bruce? It was at a Virtual Worlds conference in 90... 90 what? 97? 99 or 98, yeah. 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 On a boat. I think we met on a boat. Is that right, uh, Bruce? That's right. Uh, on the river. Remember that evening when they had the party on the boat? <laughs> yep, yep. Those were the calcium days of the dot-com. Uh, yes. <laughs> that was fun. We were gods temporarily. We can still be gods. We can still be gods, Bruce. And I was also introducing Peter. Peter, similarly, Peter has been maintained. How long have you been maintaining Bruce's sites, Peter? Um, five years, something like that. Um, through first through D and three D, and then directly for Bruce. So it's been a while. I think we've known each other since two thousand one or something. We've worked together, something like that, a long time. Yeah, I keep having, I keep going. Oh, seven years, eight years, nine years, but because it feels like it's been forever. I've known Bruce. It feels like I've known him forever. So I have to sort of dial back, saying how long I've known him for. But in short, Peter has maintained Biota.org for you know a number of years now, and is now being kind of thrust into the artificial life community through his own interest and also through the EvoGrid development. Bruce, Space.com, what's going on with the EvoGrid currently? Well, a little innocent interview that I did at the Origins Open Questions on the Origins of Life conference in Spain uh, turned into this story uh, that was ostensibly for Astrobiology magazine. And then to Leslie Mullen, the reporter, who's very good, I think, uh, she uh, offered it through the normal channels. It got picked up by Space.com and MSNBC. So there you have it. It's, it's basically propelled the evil grid as a meme into a global audience. Cool. So I asked this question of Jeffrey, uh, I asked this question, sorry, of, of Gerald, and I think I've asked it of Jeffrey in the past as well. How do you take the immense public interest that you get through a story on space.com or some other resource and channel it into something productive in the long term, Bruce? What's your thinking on that? Oh, well, you hope that uh, serious people show up at the wiki or the join the mailing list um, for me personally, I, I just want to have some awareness where, you know, I've done this multiple times in the past with different projects from the DigiBarn to landing people on asteroids and stuff. And, and you, what you want to have is when you, when you meet people, they, they know the name, they know the, they, you know, they know DigiBarn or they know digital space or they know uh, whatever or no further or things like that. And they, they, they can say, oh, you're that person from that project. I know about it vaguely or tell me more. And, and if you can get that kind of backdoor awareness, the back of the closet awareness, uh, it's a real door opener. Now, hopefully it's not a negative uh, association. 
I, I think what interests me in terms of the kind of broader public understanding of artificial life, and I think the Evo grid is part of this, is that there is a huge degree of public support out there in terms of what we do. In a kind of, you know, when I describe, you know, what we do, when people hear the Bio to podcast, when they hear interviews and kind of filter through, and I'm sure through this space.com, certainly in the discussion and the comment feed, there's a broader sense of people that may not be, you know, doing the kind of stuff that we do with artificial life, but just have an appreciation that there are people such as yourself and Jeffrey and, and Peter out there doing this work. And I think that's an amazing positive plus in the long term that these articles come out and give a sense of people, oh, yes, people are actually doing that interesting stuff. I think what interests me through the comments in particular is all the comments related to Biota Lives in the past. <laughs> the, the questions, the ideas of how do we remove the human hand from the simulation, you know, this is great, but, and a series of related questions all seem to have been covered in the, um, we're coming up to 50 Biota Lives next show, Bruce. Yes, 50. Yes, 50. So I think it's an interesting, uh, in terms of the kind of broader public understanding of artificial life and certainly what you're doing with the Evo grid, that's certainly the case. But in terms of, you talk about the right kind of eyes coming through with the view that I guess you want the assistance of uh, high-level people like you mentioned Freeman Dyson in the article, but I mean people of that nature looking at the Evo grid. But in terms of the kind of readership of space.com, do you see the being open source people? What kind of people do you see that would, would come to it and kind of leave a, a longer-term legacy associated with the Evo grid? Well, certainly space.com attracts nerds and weenies of all sorts, uh, including techies, dreamers, would-be space people, a lot of aerospace engineers, uh, systems engineers, uh, sci-fi buffs, uh, sci-fi fantasy buffs, some gamers, uh, g general sort of heavy, heavy on the visionary side of technology people. Uh, you know, like somebody like Will Wright goes to readspace.com all the time, and you know, important people go and look at it. Uh, and they have a science branch uh, that Dave Brody, who's the guy that kind of manhandles everything there. Um, so there, it, it's it's a really great site. It's really been well put together, and and uh, it has a huge archive now of stuff. So I, I think it's an important constituency. Certainly. Certainly. What I found, and the best overlap that I found with regards to the biota community is when I was interviewed on Floss Weekly, because there, as you say, you have a particular kind of tech nerd who's, uh, you know, very much in the kind of open source vein that information needs to be free and that's the right kind of information. And, and it always interests me, particularly from your experiences with, with New Scientists and Scientific American and, and all these kind of popular publications, how it really does reach out to the broader public in the sense that there was a warm fuzzy, at least there was a group of wonderful people out there doing artificial life development. But I'm always interested in whether we can do you know, publicity associated with very specific groups within these broader articles. In terms of the interview for space.com, how would you tune it in the future? I mean, if there are going to be a series of, of articles on space.com associated with the Evo grid, how would you like to tune them in the future? Well, what was interesting is in San Sebastian at the Palacio Miramara, there was a, a, a confluence of people. There were people doing a chemical-based protocell development 
there were uh, people who had done artificial life development from the 80s and 90s. Uh, there were philosophers. Uh, there was no people with a religious or spiritual bent. But and then there were the astrobiologists, who are you know life in the universe people. And so within that context, I think the evil grid can actually speak to different constituencies. And there's even somebody from biomedical research that commented saying, if you build an evil grid, it will become a general purpose, a chemical experimental engine, a simulator like a flight simulator. We can try experiments hmm. out before we do them in the lab. It will revolutionize chemistry. And he, he was adamant. He says, don't, you know, don't misunderstand me. What you're building is very, very important for chemistry. And, and so in a sense, where I found myself was in the opportunity to to say, hey, this is an artificial, soft artificial life project with heavy connections to uh, chemistry, applied chemistry, uh, an effort to shed light on the origin of, origin of life itself. One of the researchers said, basically, what you're doing is the only thing that's going to help us in the next you know, decades. You are taking the tax that is the only way forward for origin of life research. This was Doran Lanset from the Weizmann Institute in Israel. And he was adamant about that. Um, and, but at the same time, the article could talk about visionary things like where is life in the universe and our origins, and, but come back to potential value in, in biomedical research. So it, I found myself at a confluence of things. I wasn't just talking about, I was talking about a project that is artificial life within a much bigger context to which it, has, it is relevant. And in terms of kind of bringing along the artificial life community for the ride, how do you see the Evo grid working in the future, bringing the kind of discussion that goes on in Biota Live and goes on even, I think, in the broader kind of uh, academic artificial life community? I mean, how do you see the, these, these communities coming along with the Evo grid? Oh, I, I could see having, for instance, Doran Lancet on the program. I could see getting Stuart Kaufman uh, in a sense like virtual worlds, I think the evil grid is a magnet, it is a strange attractor that will pull in many different people who found it interesting, and and they will join the effort, like our original Biota Conference, Digital Burgess, and the other ones did. Um, this we're creating we're creating almost a, sort of a signpost or a we're creating an agora for many people to come in. A, a, a marketplace or a, a town center that that has many streets out to different different uh, walks of life and engineering disciplines and whatever. And if, if you create a successful agora and attract people in, then then you can really get momentum on a on a project and and create it. You, this is the birth. I think it's the birth of a new field. And Steen basically said that last year when I was in Denmark, saying we we need to do a track on this at Artificial Life 12 because it's the birth of a new subfield that is, has connections everywhere. And, and so we're planning that at the end of August for A-Life 12 is to have a, a dedicated track to this kind of thing and therefore birth it as its own standalone entity. And in terms of the time frame, as, as Bruce Damer, the PhD student, and moving more into this kind of summoning the EvoGrid narrative, has your time frame changed from when we talked with you, you know, two or three months ago, associated with when, you know, when things will move forward with the Evo grid? Is it based on funding, or are you just going to continue with the summoning until it gets to a critical mass? Well, it, dare I say it here publicly on this forum, but 
I'm planning to have a full draft of the dissertation done either at the end of the year or by February. And it will be, thank, thanks to you, Tom, uh, basically summoning the EvoGrid. Why, are, why do we do this? How could we do this? What are the directions forward? Uh, what is the historical background for this? What are the prior art? That's, that's what the dissertation is going to be. So it's a building block, or it's a, it could end up becoming a publication, a foundational publication underneath this new emerging field. And then in the spring, I'll get academic review going and present, perhaps, present a final dissertation, a final draft by July, and, and maybe a presentation in the summer or the fall and try to complete either at the end of 2010 or beginning of 2011. And that it, it, timing is good for that because the dissertation itself will inform the A-Life 12 track uh, and be a publication that, that could serve as a, as a benchmark for, for this whole new sort of subfield of study, I hope. And it also fits in well with the Biota 5 time frame being probably mid-2011. Yeah, exactly. The design, the design, Biota 5 design. And, and yeah, and, and that point, um, you know, maybe we are starting something brand new here. Uh, and I'm really pleased to, to read, to listen to some of the Biota lives on what is now called EVE, uh, which was formerly EvoGrid. Uh, broad, and I'm, I'm encouraged that perhaps several groups will generate, and individuals will generate XML phenotypes, and the simulations will start to talk. Because I think what Scott Schaefer pointed out, he said, I'm less interested in the emergence of, say, a, an artificial origin of life. I'm interested in the emergence of behavior, and that's a higher level concept, um, and, and that's fascinating. I, I, I can't get that out of my head. What he said. They say that again, emergence of behavior instead of? Behavior instead of this whole hard issue of getting fundamental building blocks together to, to, to generate the fundamental ratcheting and the complexity to start to then eventually get to behavior. I see. Uh -huh. I think he's more interested in putting higher level blocks together and seeing Carl Sims blocky creature-like, seeing the behavior. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, not having to do it from absolute scratch. Uh huh. And and that's that's definitely, you know, that that's definitely another branch to this, I guess. Well, as I pointed out to him, I thought it was much of the same continuum. That basically you're you're talking about the same continuum, but just different sections of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, after decades of the evil grid running, perhaps we'll see really interesting behaviors, or maybe hopefully. Not decades, but I, I will let Peter comment on that. Yeah, well, huh, me? Um, I don't really know what to say. Well, it may not be decades, but <laughs> it's uh, it's I mean, I, I, I think anything. At the beginning of the virtual world period in 1995, we held a brainstorming session with our core consortium team, and so we just we went for two days and we. We wrote notes and we said, what would happen if you had a fully developed virtual world? And you'd have avatar teleports and you'd have people creating identities and doing all kinds of things. And you'd have large landscapes and overhead maps. And we dreamed it all up. Before. And I think that it's about, we're about 75% of the way there in, in modern multi-user worlds. 
um, you know, 12, 13, 14 years later. And I think that in a sense we're in that stage with evil grid-like things. In the dreaming stage, and and in, when you're dreaming, you really can't put a, a time frame on it. You just you put out a hope and a wish, and hope the universe uh, guides you there. And I think as, as Peter and and Gerald and I discussed on various lives, things like open sim, removing the visualizer from the problem and actually just concentrating on the simulation and, you know, feeding it to something like OpenSim is, you know, a revolution in thinking for a lot of artificial life developers as well. These kind of, which really, I mean, Bruce, you've been talking about for a number of years in terms of breaking the visualizer away from the simulation. But now these tools are, you know, increasingly becoming more available. I think it'll produce very interesting, uh, you know, very interesting methods of simulation where you're almost... I don't know, the descriptive artist kind of telling the, uh, the painter what to paint specifically. I think we're entering, a, we're entering a period where a golden age where we actually now have a practice, where we understand how to make these large, persistent, dynamic, procedurally generated, evolving, human-inhabited digital spaces. I mean, this is a golden age that's starting, and things like OpenSim are, are, and Siricata and other projects are going to fuel that. And, and the funny thing about the Evo Grid is it's so visualization, it, it swings the other way where it's virtually no visualization. It's just pure numbers. And the visualization is, is, is something for the human, but the machine is going to observe the actual visual structure, if you will, and look for patterns. And we're kind of, we're uh, bystanders in some ways, unless you want to use the the intelligent designer edition and go in and try to make things happen, but it's 99.999% unvisual. Mm. So it's it's a completely, it's Baricelli's universe, basically, or a tiara or things like that. Um, and and uh, because in some sense the, the, the world, our bodies and the oceans and whatnot aren't visualized, if they were, you know, if we had a, there's no rendering layer in nature. You know, we, we as having eyeballs and lenses and frontal cortex are creating are creating a rendering of a very tiny patch of, of the surface of the Earth. Very all interesting. Chem- all chemistry. That makes me think about data visualization as a, um, as a te- technique for understanding nature um, and uh, understanding scientific research, which much of it is often not readily visualizable, not, not spatial in a sense. But, um, but even if it's not, you know, there's a lot of creativity involved in, in making things and bringing uh, dynamic behavior and data in, in, into ways that allow this, this great occipital lobe that we all have to take that information and, and digest it in a way that's very human. So... Um, in, in a sense, by having something that's not innately visual, it sets up this very interesting uh, uh, problem, challenge, uh, to, to make it intuitive. And the, the, the interesting thing is by, getting, by trying to be a, a low-level approximation of chemistry and what happens in chemistry, you, you, you go talk to chemists, and especially the protocell people, and they go, of course, we live in a world of darkness. We, we have no idea what is going on. We, 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 we draw diagrams that are incredibly rough approximations of what is going on in our experiments, and, and, and we're constantly, constantly 
groping in this darkness to 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 make sense in our in our own brains about what's going on at the, the quantum and the chemical level. But is it chemistry? I mean, chemistry. It would seem to me would there would be a lot of a, a very visual component. Um, Watson and Crick uh, built models, and those models were part of their intuition enhancement, I believe. What what I noticed in Spain, and that that is that's you're absolutely correct. But in Spain, there were some teams that were showing these incredible mechanisms, visualization of of a protein of a molecule that's synthesizing identical copies of a smaller molecule. And they're showing it, and everyone's like, oh, that's so wonderful. It looks like a little man's arm coming out and swinging, <laughs> pulling the thing through. But the chemists would say, they would sit there with their squinting and go, yeah, but it's not really like that. <laughs> it isn't that clean. It isn't that. And you're kind of thinking, wow, you know, I, I think I now understand. And then the people who are actually dealing with this stuff every day are like, it doesn't look believably believable to us because we never see this. Uh-huh. I was like, okay, well, what are you seeing down there through that that digital, that million-dollar digital microscope? And and you know the the large the macroscale chemistry, the chemistry of these globules of fat that is of oils that are being used in protocell development. It's amazing watching these molecules go through pH gradients and sort of chug around on their own. They're like little machines. They're moving around and they're they're doing. They're following a pH gradient. There's 10 to the 9 molecules pulsating on their surfaces, moving around, doing the quantum Hall effect, and they're chugging away like little engines. And that's at the macro scale. Uh-huh. They keep saying, well, you can relate to this because there's 10 to the 9 molecules, and you can see it with your own eye, but the real stuff now, you know, in the cell, on the cell membrane, we draw these diagrams. Uh, and we say they're approximations. Uh, There's a mystery around how, what's really going on. and the, the chemists will never commit and say that really represents what is happening. They, they seem to be averse to doing that. Is that, that a level of, is that a level where quantum effects are, are involved? I, I don't, I'm not well-versed enough into that. What is that threshold where we're talking about quantum? Because I, I could see how once you get down to that level... You're talking about a whole different notion of visualization. Yeah, and I think Peter Peter has been looking at uh, what's been implementing bond forming and breaking and the first early precursor EvoGrid prototype and and attest to complex things that are being closely put together and glued together together. Um, Peter, do you want to jump in? Is this a um? Yeah, can you guys hear me? I'm getting some breaking up here. We can hear you. Okay, good. It might just be on my end. Um, well, that's the interesting thing because uh, I approached this, this simulation that you go grid with, we've got atoms flying around and they're going to form bonds and break bonds and change into different chemicals and so forth. Um, and I approached it with uh, more or less a high school understanding of chemistry where you've got your little balls and your little sticks and they're all holding them together and that's your atom and you go, oh, isn't that nice and neat? Um <laughs> And then I started reading about how the bonds actually form and you know, what the mathematics is behind the bond formation, and I'm going, it shouldn't be too bad. Um, and after doing a lot of research, it basically came down to uh, quantum mechanics, that they have to simulate all the electrons and so forth to, in order to correctly calculate the forces. Um, and electrons don't just sit there and form these nice little bonds. That's just a conceptual thing, and that um, at the 
the level that you actually need to get an accurate formation and deformation and so forth is, is very different to what we're used to seeing as a model of a chemical, where we're used to seeing nice little jointed balls that are sitting together and overlapping a little bit. Um, that the, as, as soon as you start trying to do bonds, you've got, to, you've got to model your electron interaction because... And your electrons don't just sort of sit there and you imagine these little balls whizzing around the outside like you see the pictures of the, of the atom when they're talking about nuclear physics and you have an atom with all these electrons whipping around it. And apparently it's nothing like that, but it looks neat. Mm. And that's, it, it, they, they talk about shells and areas of force and so forth, which would, and I, I'm, I'm trying to visualize what I'm reading from these descriptions and I'm just going, I don't quite see what they're trying to say. Sorry, I've said this in the past, Peter, but as a physics graduate, my concern with regards to the way you describe it is the kind of intrepid fear that someone usually gets when they approach the worst possible explanation of quantum mechanics. The whole purpose of quantum mechanics is actually really, really simple, and if you throw all the formulae and all the concepts aside, it's just about solving, solving exact problems. So what you see with regards to, you know, visualizing sticks and balls and all this kind of stuff is just propaganda. So throw that away to start off with. Liberate yourself from that. And think of, think of the principles like they're like jelly almost, but they do glue together. So they don't have a solid physical form as you describe it, but they will ultimately connect. Obviously, it's just a different mapping of the model. That's um, sort of not what I was trying to say. Um, I mean, I, un I understand that, that what, what I, I, well, I believe I understand what you're saying. It was more when I tried to get a concrete uh, set of rules for it. I mean, as a generality, we'd go, oh, yeah, they, they will form an inducer and so forth. Um, and I was, trying to, I was trying to get an understanding of what sort of rules were needed, not thus that rules, because what we um, part of the EVA grid is we're exploring different rule sets and different um, you know, constants and so forth. But I still had to have an idea of the sort of rules that would need to be included, and that was when I started researching it. And I'm going, well, I think I know what they're talking about, but um, this is complicated. Well, it appears complicated, but really, I mean, the whole notion of energy walls with regards to, you know, transitions and these kind of things is all—it's all to do with how you visualise it. This is uh, the kind of thing that I was discussing with Bruce when he first started talking about the Evo grid as being uh, a kind of artificial chemistry simulation. Do you think, Bruce, I mean, when we discussed this initially, we talked about possible worlds as being a, a you know, best possible solution. Do you think what Peter's describing with regards to his, his own mapping of an understanding of quantum mechanics physics, do you think it would be better to create a kind of new physics which fitted in some way and removed the Evo grid from the kind of explicit boundaries of, of the natural world? Yeah, in fact, uh, Penny Boston um, and several other the advisors on the advisory team have told us, don't try to go for simulating a real chemistry, real aqueous chemistry, because you need a whole planet to do what you're trying to do. And you need a lot of time that goes beyond the length of a grant or a human lifetime. They said, they've always said, do something that is in the abstract and that allows you to vary the physics parameters in real time. Uh, to to try to track, to, 
to get the emergent behavior you're looking for earlier than trying to be faithful to a chemical simulation. And I think what was interesting talking with Peter last time with Gerald Jung on the line was that Gerald provides a very interesting example from Buckminster Fuller with regards to the 12 three-dimensional kind of nearest neighbor oranges in a fruit stall kind of stacking. I mean, I think these kind of models with regards to artificial chemistry actually probably yield more interesting results than trying to grasp, you know, contemporary quantum mechanics and model those, you know, those realities. I mean, the beautiful thing with regards to what Gerald described is that it might, you get carbon chemistry for free. I mean, the, the, the mathematical model described by Gerald basically will give you everything that you need for carbon or carbon-like chemistry to come out of it, including some of the um, you know, uncertainties, but also some of the energy groupings that you get through quantum mechanics. So I think it was an interesting example. I mean, certainly coming from my physics background, thinking about all the things you get for free by just using a different mathematical model for describing the kind of chemical interactions. Yeah, and in fact, it's those sort of tricks and shortcuts uh, that we're going to have to introduce over the years to, to get closer and closer. And yet the chemists are saying, please, you know, please make something that's close to a tool that we might be able to use. I mean, so there's definitely a, there's a, there's a push and a pull, but at least there's a demand. I mean, Certainly. the theoreticians are saying, show us the emergence. Don't, don't listen to the chemists. And the chemists are saying, we need your help. We need tools, you know, and we, we'll never get emergence. We'll never understand what we're looking at unless you give us something that represents what we're seeing in down the beaker. But there has to be a pragmatic medium. I mean, this is the whole point with the Evo grid is that ultimately you can't, you can't keep both factions happy. You have to basically tide the course straight down the middle and, and do what needs to be done. And in fact, what Penny said is you, if you show ratcheting up complexity, you can say to everybody, look, in principle it's possible to, that this can happen on its own and, and it's ratcheting up and we can characterize it. Now we put more computing power. Now we get more models involved, modelers, and more physics, and we're going to gradually converge. The tool is going to become more and more like real chemistry over the decades. And the same thing happened with physical simulation with rover, you know, net Mars rover stuff and the simulation of robotics on surfaces of planets. I mean, that was so crude in the 80s. I mean, they could barely do anything other than a, a, a mesh contact with another mesh. And now it's, you know, two decades, two and a half decades later, it's it's on the verge of being use, useful for designing real robots, uh, but it took you know decades. Um, but it didn't stop the original people from from going for it. Certainly, and I think I mean getting Gerald involved with the Evo grid, in terms of the fact that he already has this as a mathematical model. I mean, if he could slot that in as a a kind of chemical you know chemical approximation, I mean that's a wonderful start in terms of you being able to kind of run with carbon chemistry. I mean, ideally, you build an Evo grid. That is so pluggable and so open with sliders and, and and pluggable components that you say, look, do you want to try your artificial universe, your toy universe out with your 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 shortcuts and your tricks of the trade and and your ideas and your brilliant insights to try to get emergence to happen? You should be able to 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 set up a simulation and set up all the physics uh, and and try your experiment. So there will be like physics experimenters and there will be people who experiment with the starting conditions or the, the elements within the simulation. There's all kinds of ways, and if it was open enough, you'd have teams all over the world that were, were competing to try 
to get the annual ratcheting prize or whatever it might be. Uh, we've discussed prizes in the past, Bruce. I don't think they yield the right kind of solutions. Right. I think there needs to be a way to recognize all the teams universally and can kind of continue to usher them through rather than create some kind of false competition. Yeah, and, you know, ideally, uh, the evil grid over time or future incarnations will be a general tool that is used in chemistry. It's used in theoretical studies and complexity. It's, you know, it. You know that that would alone be enough. I mean, to satisfy those those two groups. I mean, you're you're, you're tackling two of the most gigantic, uh, you know, unsolved or or difficult hard problems in science and engineering. And down the road, if you can if you can simulate a real a whole cell in real time, you know, with 100 million cores uh, running, if you can do whole cell simulation, you can take a crack at cancer and things. So it's it's a non it's a, it's a non-trivial non it's a not insignificant capability that you're aiming at. So once again, Bruce, you've pushed our news and notes into being a large portion of the show, but I, I wanted to kind of continue with this evening's show topic, maybe for the remaining 15 or 20 minutes before we close out this uh, extraordinary uh, Biota Live. And the topic that I wanted to put out this evening comes from uh, P.W. Singer's Wired for War. I'm not sure, Jeffrey, you have, uh, you know, you're amazingly well-connected in terms of publications. Do you know Wired for War at all? Uh, no, but I, I'm familiar with Peter Singer. Is, is that the singer that we know about, the Australian philosopher? Uh, P.W. Singer, no, it's a different fellow. I'm sorry. Okay. So the section of the book that deals with artificial life is specifically associated with Rodney Brooks and iRobot, but also the continuation of the robots that are being used currently in Iraq and Afghanistan specifically uh, by the U.S. I think I've heard about this, yeah. Yeah. So what interested me is the idea that artificial life in its most productive incarnation or certainly its most publicly known incarnation is currently being used either to, to disable IEDs or actively to, to act as kind of robotic soldiers in these two conflicts. So to move the, uh, move the conversation spectrum slightly towards a kind of darker edge, I find it fascinating as a kind of you know, contemporary advocate and um, artificial life hobbyist that these kind of ventures are the ones that are actually yielding a large portion of technical development, but also a certain degree of ethically bad um, PR in terms of fields like artificial life. And I think what I found particularly curious reading through Wired for War was the way Rodney Brooks is kind of portrayed as almost a kind of Peter Pan-like character in some regard, but also someone who is fundamentally ethically naive. And I'm not sure whether that is an accurate representation or whether that was the kind of characterization for the book. But, Jeffrey, I mean, you, you must think about the, these kind of ethical issues associated with particular directions of artificial life. I mean, what's your thinking with regards to this? Well, I suppose it's like uh, any, any technology created by humans. Uh, if it's powerful enough, it's going to have a dark side and a bright side. I think that's just... I think every technology has that potential. The advocates in the U.S. military and certainly, you know, the Pentagon describe it as actually being a, a life-saving idea. And certainly I've had, through, you know, through my career, I've met people in defense that talk about using all these technologies to save lives. So I think it's 
probably a euphemism for saving our lives versus the other the other people's lives. There's a philosophy within these um, kind of companies associated with the idea that they're reducing the amount of time that is consumed by wars in some fundamental sense. And certainly in Wide Four, there was a discussion of this idea of a kind of omnipresent battlefield where basically what you're gathering is so much intelligence. And this is the idea of soft artificial life. It's not just hard artificial life. It's not just robotics. Yeah, yeah. It's also soft artificial life in terms of information gathering, data gathering, and the way in which this is being processed. Yes. In fact, I can imagine that, that the viruses of today could become the, um, the weapons of the future. They'll actually be used to move around on the Internet, which is increasingly more, more and more a part of human life, to actually engage in, in, in battle autonomously. And as an artificial life developer, Jeffrey, I mean, what, what do you think your, your own interaction with regards to this is on a kind of ethical level? Well, I'm, I'm not going into that business, that's for sure. So I guess that's all, that's all I would say. Um, it's, it's, it's actually a part of, it's part of, the, human, uh, it's, it's part of the human equation to fight. And I, I, don't, I, I think it'll always happen, and there's always different ways. And I suppose this is just the, the, next, uh, the next era of, of how that's done. When you were at MIT, did you did you know Rodney Brooks? I, I've met him a few times, and um, I visited his lab, but he probably doesn't remember me. In terms of the kind of natural continuum, I mean, do you see places like MIT and potentially, you know, Stanford and these kind of universities being used for this kind of development and manipulation of artificial life into the future? Oh, yes. It's been going on for a very long time. Uh, Part of my funding um, at the at the MIT Media Lab was was defense. I tried to uh, to to get out of that. I wanted to try to have most most of my research funding coming from other sources, but it's all it's also mixed it's also mixed in in the um, you know in in terms of where the funding goes. I was working on an air traffic control simulation, uh, visualizing some of the, the 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 aspects of air traffic control, and that was partially. De- uh, funded by the Department of Transportation, but also DOD. Um, so that's been going on for a long time, and it probably always will. Yeah, I mean, certainly the mid-'90s, John Klein, uh, a portion of Brulee was funded, actually, I think, by a DARPA grant. So, I mean, this is, yeah, there's an ongoing narrative associated with artificial life development in some regard being partially funded by defense. The kind of headline, you know, artificial life soldier, and particularly with regards to the kind of, well, it's, it's not a contemporary narrative at all. My grandfather was, was bombed by the U.S. in the Second World War when he was fighting for the British. I mean, the whole notion of friendly fire is almost an ancient consequence of war. But even now, is these, you know, intelligent agents, be they hard artificial life, be they soft artificial life, do you think there's almost an element where we're... Uh, losing the degree of responsibility associated with these kind of atrocities based on the fact that they're being undertaken by unmanned drones and, you know, independent agents. Do you think that's part of the narrative? Well, you know, this is making me think it might be a matter of semantics um, in the sense that you're using the word artificial life to, to describe what we do. There's, of course, many different aspects of artificial life uh, in a sense, if you look at the whole continuum, the whole historical arc, it's autonomy. You know, the increasing the the increasing of autonomy in in militarism as well as every other human thread. And perhaps if you see it as part of that arc, an artificial life is just 
is just, you know, when, when autonomy starts to look biological and act bi- biological, we call it artificial life. So, you know, sometimes, sometimes people have to choose a different name for what they do because that name gets polluted by other endeavors. Like Craig Venter is using the word artificial life a lot, and that whole, that whole world is a very different world, right? And mm-hmm. it has a, it's a, a, all of its controversy associated with it. And that's kind of interfering with, with what we talk about when we talk about artificial life. So, you know, it could be that uh, our, our term has been, has been taken by, by a much bigger meme, and perhaps we need to use other terms. I'm just thinking that, you know, sometimes if you look at this uh, in terms of semantics, you can sort of see it differently. Certainly. And Bruce, whilst we joke about the Evo grid being used to create robots that take over the world, and there's a, there's a, I'm not sure whether it's a Bruce Damer authorized video, but there's certainly an Evo grid video where the, uh, where the robots take over London. What's your thought associated with the kind of ethics of artificial life associated with a potential military use of the Evo grid? The Evo grid deep, as we've described it, is, is probably of no use for military use at all. Uh, you know, the military, uh, it, it, you have to sort of divide up. You know, I have many friends in the military and many friends who work in research and in DARPA. And DARPA, while supported by the Department of Defense, has got a lot of independent research. It isn't classified. So not all work for the DOD is, is going straight to battlefield applications. Um, and people who do SBIRs and other projects for the Air Force and whatnot are, many of them are doing really fundamental research that can be used by anybody, and it's also non-classified and might have ITAR restrictions. I won't explain that for the audience. But I think that the the evil grid itself is so fundamental, it's such so pure, uh, it's, it's almost like particle physics where um, we were out at the National Ignition Facility, for example, at uh, Lawrence Livermore Lab, and that's the inertial fusion uh, facility is just about to be turned on, and we met uh, John Lindell, who's, who got the thing funded, and he basically said, and I quote, he said, well, we told, our cover story was that the National Ignition Facility is, is going to uh, allow us to test the quality of weapons-grade uh, fissionable materials and, and, and safeguard our supply, because it will provide this capability, but truthfully, we're doing fundamental research that will have no military applications at all and will take decades, you know, which is looking at fusion happening and, and not even fusion that's going to create uh, a net positive production of power. It's, this is not even for commercial use. It's just fundamental. And, and it's certainly Department of Energy and Department of Defense supported. This is sort of a cover story, but there's no real use for the military for that yet. But I guess if you look at Rodney Brooks' work specifically, I mean, I guess the early 90s he was doing robotic ants or these kind of creatures, and now, um, you know, he's doing robots that have submachine guns attached to them. So, I mean, my feeling is that all this research can be claimed to be not useful in a military sense but can just be twisted slightly. It's been put to me occasionally, and particularly soon after itself it was on, that a lot of the Eli Lilly-related research, and there are other um, there are other pharma companies that are um, using artificial life in order to track uh, chemical compounds, and also actually optimising research to eliminate chemical compounds which don't appear to be 
you know, interesting points of research, that these same algorithms could equally be tuned in terms of biological weapons, in terms of, you know, a wide variety of technologies which aren't necessarily the kind of things that, you know, artificial life developers, particularly those who participate in these kind of endeavours, would want to create. We came back, I remember talking to Travis Savo um, probably a year ago, talking about Einstein and, and the bomb in the kind of continuum from Einstein to the bomb. As we develop this kind of technology, do you think we need a, almost a kind of ethical discussion that goes along in parallel about the uses of this kind of technology and how it can be you know, used in a very positive way? Or do you think it's just an inevitability of this kind of technology that if the shortest possible distance between it being developed and it coming into something meaningful as a military sense, robots with grenade launchers attached, etc., that it will just follow that natural path. What's, what's your sense with regards to the ethics of this, Bruce? I, I have a kind of a clear vision on this that I've never thought I'd have, and it results from going through Robert Oppenheimer's files at the Institute for Advanced Study. Because if you know the history, you know, Oppenheimer was a key scientist on, on the Los Alamos project, on Los Alamos and the Manhattan Project. He was absolutely instrumental in the creation of the atomic bomb that you know, was used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the Trinity test and whatnot. But he was one of the most vocal, you know, which was a huge detriment to his, his career, uh, opponents of the mass development of nuclear destructive capability and then the creation of the nuclear arms race. And at one point in the early 1950s, he was referred to as the conscience, conscience of humanity. So he, he was providing some pushback at, at huge personal cost to him. Uh, if you look at pictures of, of, of Oppenheimer in this time period, and you, you know, he's got this broad-rimmed, kind of uh, floppy, uh, New Mexico beaten-up uh, leather hat, and under there are these great gazing liquid eyes uh, that are both very wise and very sad, and the stress that he's under for the, the Committee for Un-American Activities and all the stuff. He kept his job at the Institute, but he was really broken by this. However, in the 1980s, when anti-nuclear movements were growing and, you know, this whole idea that, you know, nuclear winter could happen from, you know, Carl Sagan, um, Oppenheimer was referred to as, as, as an early conscious, an early ethical speaker, as one of the, the inventors of the technology. And I think that his spirit or his ghost inhabited that world and came back, and it did have an influence on humanity having a conscience about this. And when the opportune moment came, the Soviet Union uh, just got rid of, and the U.S. too got rid of whole classes of nuclear weapons, just lock, stock, and barrel, and put them in warehouses and stored the fuel and, and the, the, you know, the igniters and whatever, but basically took them out of commissions by the thousands. And so Yes, it is really important to have a, an ethical discussion and a voice and a very public one on any technology as it is inevitably sucked into uh, various uses. Um, and you have to have that, and you have to have that vocal and at the beginning, and it may not make any, in, any impact, but it may down the road be, be essential for a rebalancing. And how do you think we actually do this as artificial life developers, Jeffrey? Oh, we, we definitely need to... to, uh, to keep that uh, narrative going. We may not be the actual proponents of that narrative, but by virtue of the things we make and the way we make them and how we dress them and present them, 
could help people see uh, certain kinds of um, positive uses for for our work. So, in a sense, um, uh, we can we can definitely help keep that dialogue going. And a good a good example, I've been trying to set a tone in the in the Evil Grid the movies, uh, a tone of lightness and humor uh, and whimsy and cartooniness, and a very non-threatening tone, a very positive, sort of upbeat, shiny tone in those two movies. Um, Rami L. at the University of College London, the Bartlett School, he approached me uh, about four or five months ago uh, saying, I want to make a movie of The Evil Grid, but I want to do it from more of a Hollywood perspective and, and critters uh, kind of escaping and, and evolving and eating uh, Canary Wharf, which it, currently, if you know, that's the financial center of London, people would be cheering if they saw Canary Wharf being consumed. It wouldn't be a bad thing. Um, so Canary Wharf gets consumed by the escaped evil grid organisms. But at the end, and he's still doing the final edits on this, and he and I worked out the script on this. At the end, he said, yes, I, what I'm going to do is show how Canary Wharf and all the concrete and all the awful 60s housing blocks get converted into these amazing new bioforms that are totally sustainable and, and convert the city in from this glass and steel logic-based uh, destructive model into a, a new kind of biology that is compatible with people. Uh, and that, that was the shared vision for his people for his film, but he's still working on it. It doesn't quite come across in the June 1st version. So we're trying to, that's the narrative we're trying to put out with these YouTube movies. I think it's really, a, really a, the, the mechanism of today to, to share uh, narratives. I mean, certainly when I read Wired for War, and I'm not sure what period of time it was, I think it was around January when I picked up the book, but it was around the period of time, and really this narrative started in Biota probably about six to eight months ago, as associated with the quality of life for artificial life developers, and it started really my own thinking because I received a slew of emails from artificial life developers who had lost their jobs and were unemployed. Many of them have been unemployed ever since I received their emails. For a brief period of time, I was also in that predicament. And I think it's an interesting narrative associated with kind of contemporary artificial life developers being in, in somewhat hopeless life circumstances and also the lures of, uh, you know, these kind of enterprises in terms of actually bringing in the development. And I've reflected over this period of time associated with, you know, how other artificial life developers, if they were offered uh, an ability to survive and live, uh, through doing, you know, development that ultimately ended up with weapon systems and these kind of things. I mean, can we as a community fault these people for surviving in this manner? And I think this is the broader and deeper ethical question associated with how we use what we've developed. Jeffrey, I mean, what's your thought with regards to this kind of narrative? Well, I suppose if in any society, if, if uh, someone's uh, struggling to find work, uh, their standards and their principles are, are going to be compromised to some degree. And some of us have stronger principle, principles than others. And others, so, you know, some people will choose jobs that they're not sure they want to do. And, you know, so in times of economic, economic difficulty, 
this can happen. I'm actually I'm actually doing some contract work right now. That's that um, I believe is probably uh, fueled a little bit by the stimulus package. Uh, the stimulus package from the Obama administration going into uh, new energy uh, technologies and medical. In in my case, it's it's medical. Um, so you know, and and the, the latest technology review from MIT shows this really cool graph of. Uh, of uh, where all this money's going, and it's really nice to see these great big blobs of billion, you know, billions of dollars. I don't know to what degree this is is real, but but uh, apparently there, you know, uh, there's there's money that's that's coming in through certain pipes, and if you can tap that, uh, then you know maybe that maybe there's an opportunity. Well, I certainly put to Bruce as I saw, as you say, these blobs of billions coming through space, in particular through NASA. Um, that you know the Evo grid could latch on to some of that associated with particularly astrobiology. I mean, I think that's an area that's still receiving some degree of funding. But Bruce, I mean, if you want to air it in a public form, what was your feedback when I mentioned that to you? The astrobiology? No, just the sense that these billions of dollars that were going into things like NASA had basically already been claimed and were relatively untouchable for people that were doing the kind of research that you were doing. Well, it's it's partially true in that. Stimulus, I mean, it depends on the agency. So stimulus to National Science Foundation initially, NSF, and I can understand why this worked out. They said we're, not going, we're only going to fund uh, proposals that have already been submitted to us that we've already approved for funding. We just didn't have it. So they're taking like the things that they wanted to fund and couldn't. And they, but they, so it's really faster. They can get the money out. People are called up and said, you know that proposal you sent two years ago that got a nine and we just couldn't fund it, and well, here's the money. So that's good. But of course, it means you can't, they wouldn't accept new applications. Yeah. The SBIR program, um, at, which I think SBIR, which stands for Salt Small Business Innovation and Research, should be like quadrupled because it's, it's such a tremendous program. We've been doing those grants on SBIR grants for eight, nine years, and it doesn't show any sign of, of having a new infusion. And SBIR, the solicitations come out every year, and there's, there's some coming out in about three days from NASA, and it's the same old topics. It's not, there should be triple the number of topics. It's a small amount of money. It has a direct impact economically on a lot of people, and it creates innovation in small businesses. And So I think that the monies are going out. I, in my little world of a small research company, uh, I'm, I'm yet to uh, see... Uh, avenues by which I can pursue those funds. Maybe Jeffrey can give me some advice. No, I don't think so. I, <laughs> you probably know more about uh, f funding sources than I do. And I mean, certainly the feedback that I've received from artificial life developers, people that have, you know, PhDs and uh, MSCs who are currently unemployed, is that they haven't had any access to any of these funding resources either. I mean, I think the general feedback that I've received is that the things in the artificial life community in terms of people even being paid and working in secondary, tertiary, or even non-related fields is pretty bleak currently. Having had the experience myself, I think if I was to have the conversation that I had with Matt Badeau in November last year, the idea that artificial life developers would have this wonderful period where they didn't have any work so they could concentrate exclusively on their own projects, I may have reacted slightly more 
hostilely to that claim. But I think it's an interesting it's an interesting ethical problem. There is some level to talk to Jeffrey's point with regards to you know some people have higher ethical standards than other people. People who I've communicated with in the artificial life community that haven't had income for more than a year. Um, many of them are actually living in the Bay Area on the East Coast, which I think has been particularly hardly hard hit for um, you know technology related jobs. So I think on some level, people have to eat. And uh, I think it's difficult to say that some people are more ethical than other people, while maybe, you know, life circumstances are different. I wouldn't impugn any of the people that I've corresponded with associated with their ethical level. And I think fundamentally, in order for a movement like artificial life to survive, we all need to have some means of income, even if it isn't through artificial life specifically. And Talking to Bruce historically over the past nine years, the legacy associated with people in the artificial life community who are no longer participants in the artificial life community has always come through major life trauma where they just haven't had work for long periods of time. I mean, you can echo this, Bruce. Yeah, I mean, if you're a visionary technologist uh, like Buckminster Fuller uh, in, the, in the depths of the Depression in his basement, he was building all these oddball structures and cars and gadgets and his wife came down and said we're going to starve and he was raising turtles he was doing all these kinds of things and he was starving they were starving and and he he um he's one of you know there's many potential buckminster fullers that then went and got a a job at in the government or at 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 general motors uh bucky went on and said well i i I'll try business. So he tried business, and he was really quite bad, and he was totally miserable because he couldn't be creative. And then he was somewhere, found himself somewhere where he ran into the gentleman who was planning the 1939 World's Fair. And ah. suddenly, suddenly Bucky was like, oh, you designed the kind of buildings we would like to have there. Uh, how unusual. How ama- What an amazing meeting this is. And hired Bucky, and they, they built the, the various domes and, and Stuff. And then Bucky had a career as an architect, and, but it was how many Bucky's? And Bucky actually, one of the things he believed, and this is in the Depression, he said that society should set by set aside a million dollars. You know, this is a lot of money in the 1930s. I'm going to ask for a million dollars, and and people who reach their early 40s, who are the creatives, who are really shown to be creative, should be allowed to quit their jobs and get this lifetime bequeath uh, to just be Bucky's. Um, and the society should find these people and, and allow them to live and work their entire lives uh, from that point on. He said you shouldn't give it to them any younger. They need to be experienced. They need to know why they're doing it. They need to have had a desk job, and, and they need to have life experience, but they should get these uh, endowments. And there's an annual prize that the Buckminster Fuller people put out. I put to Gerald that he should apply for it, particularly with regards to the linkings of Darwin at Home and Architecture. I think that's you know, a natural fit. I'm not sure what last year's recipient got it for, but the year before got it for um, turning um, strip mines into um, environmental, you know, environmentally reinvigorating strip mines through various kinds of plants and ecosystem planting. And it's a fascinating annual prize that I think it's the Buckminster Fuller Institute um, puts out, which kind of follows on from this, although I think they only give 100,000 from memory, which they say is enough for a year. So anyway, I'd like to wrap up this extraordinary bio to live to, to thank uh, Peter and Jeffrey and Bruce for participating in this two-part discussion. Our topic next bio to live, well, it'll be the 50th bio to live. 
So the first question to answer is, what have we learned from doing Biota Live? And the second is uh, an update associated with open source, because a lot has gone on in the past six months. Uh, new source forge, different interfaces, new projects coming through. The ever-increasing use of the Linux, Linux platform, or Linux, Linux, especially in um, low-end embedded hardware that's quite cheap for people to use. It, it allows people to uh, do development and keep their costs down, and that allows people to experiment and always encourages uh, experimentation and access to the details always encourages people to think of new things they can do with it, such as simulating artificial life. Certainly. And I think really that's true for all open source, be it run on Linux or, or more confined platforms. And I also wanted to put a question out in the news and notes to the listening community. We're actively looking for new and exciting artificial life projects, particularly with the advent of things like Biota Eve. We have a series of historical projects that we've introduced into Biota Eve, but it would be wonderful... And here, you know, I'm talking potentially to undergraduate or graduate students or even folks such as William R. Buckley who are coming into artificial life with a kind of huge history of the, uh, of the field but maybe developing new projects for the first time. Certainly Biota has been used as a springboard with regards to new projects and also interviewing new project developers. And, you know, I'd like to usher more people into the conversation and particularly folk who are perhaps just starting out doing an artificial life project. I mean, I think really... Bruce, you've been the prototype for this with regards to the EvoGrid. Oh, I mean how to start up a project? In some regard, yes. Oh, it's uh, uh, <laughs> this could be a subject of an entire biota life. <laughs> Very much so. Or in the case of the EvoGrid, I think about 15 to 20 out of the 50. So right. I'd like to thank the participants for uh, for being on the call this evening. Thanks to the folks for listening in, and, and hopefully uh, TalkShow will be working fine for the next biota life. Thanks, Tom. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, well, and you're welcome.